Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Ooh, is that pod on? Welcome to Volume 8 of Next Big Hits, Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we're going to be wrapping up the New York Musical Theater Festival this episode, as well as having interviews with a couple plays coming up. We got some great songs featured from the musicals Drift. Nothing prepares you for the unexpected shock. The Great American Trailer Park Musical. Nerds, a musical comedy software satire. We've also got an interview with Isaac Hurwitz, the executive producer of Nymph, Sharon Fallon, a producer who's worked with several Nymph shows. We also have The Thugs, a new play that's opening off off Broadway, as well as a talk with a couple directors from the Phoenix Theater Ensemble on their productions of the complete works of William Shakespeare Abridged and The Sneeze. Marty Cooper talks more about his visit to the West End in On the Positive Side. And later on in the program, we're going to tell you how you can stump the staff, submit a trivia question to win a $20 gift certificate from the Drama Bookshop. Whew, so we've got a jam-packed episode today. I know we've got a lot of new listeners since iTunes just recently featured us prominently in the page. So if you're new to our program, welcome. We urge you to check out all the other great coverage of the New York Musical Theater Festival. We've covered 30 shows, including this episode from the festival. We'll have 53 songs featured from the festival. It's a lot of stuff going on. Also, if you're listening in iTunes or on your iPod, the program is structured like an audio magazine. There's chapters. So if you're on iTunes, you can just, while you're playing it, go to the top and you'll see a chapters menu. Or on your iPod, you can just skip between tracks and listen to the things that most interest you or go back and hear some more. Like all things in the theater, word of mouth is our best advertising. So if you're enjoying the program, please take a moment and make sure you let all your other friends who are heavily into theater know about the program and let them know that they don't have to have an iPod to listen. They can listen on any computer or anything that they can listen to an MP3 file on, and, you know, show them how to subscribe. Maybe some of you didn't know how to subscribe either. But let's jump into the program with my interview with Isaac Hurwitz. We opened up the first episode of Broadway Bullet with executive director Chris Stewart talking about his expectations for the festival, and we thought it only fitting to close out the run of the New York Musical Theater Festival with Isaac Hurwitz, the executive producer. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. All right, what are some of the things you've done before you got involved with Nymph? Uh, I was the music associate for the Encore series for three years, and I was uh, working on restoring old musicals. Uh, and I was a director, and I left Encores to pursue a career in directing. Uh, and I was working at Ensemble Studio Theater, which is a, a small, reputable theater here in New York. And uh, that was when I met Chris Stewart, who was also a director, and said... Uh, I know we both like musicals, <laughs> and we're both running small programs, and uh, let's all get together and see if we can come up with some way to get our stuff on the radar. And uh, there were a lot of us who gathered together then, and that's sort of how the idea spun out. It shook out into a, a staff of a festival, and uh, 
that was in 2003, and the festival started in 2004. So, now How much of a year-round job is this, or is it pretty much just seasonal? For, for Chris and for me, it's a year-round job, um, and for Meg, our operations manager, because uh, the festival, uh, which ended on October 1st, is quickly followed by our fundraising gala in, in November, and then by our start of submissions, which is in January. How's the attendance been this year compared? Uh, it's been fantastic. We've been, I mean, partly it's because we have larger venues, we've been able to fit more people into the festival, uh, but attend, we've sold more tickets than ever before, and we haven't really had, we've had the same number of events, and uh, just goes to show how passionate the musical theater going audience here in New York really is. Um, and I think we're reaching new audiences, too. With our dance series this year, we had um, dance devotees. And uh, with our concert series at Ars Nova, I think we're tapping into different audiences than we had reached in years one and two. But it's been a fantastic year of growth for us. Yeah, I think one nice thing always going to these shows is seeing all the young faces in attendance as well. It makes makes my day. <laughs> it's I, I remember in, in the first year, Peter Felicia wrote a column in which he just couldn't get over the fact that the three people sitting next to him, their ages added up to less than his age, I think was the quote. Given the opportunity and given a low ticket price and the chance to see great performers and great writers will we'll come out and, and in droves. So were there any trends you noticed at this year's festival other than a lot of musicals about writing musicals? <laughs> <laughs> I think we had fewer this year. Oh, that, but <laughs> um, I think this year was a year of achieving the sort of diversity that we really strive for every year. Things were, uh, apart from the fact that we hadn't really realized that we had several musicals on the topic of group therapy, we really had a stylistic and topical diversity that we haven't had um, that we try for every year. But we've had everything from a sort of Cirque du Soleil extravaganza to opera, basically, and then these dance musicals. And, I, and one of the things that I've been hearing as I've been going through is is people's amazement that what they've been going and seeing from 4.30 till 8 p.m. are so dramatically different that I think that's been partly why the audience attendance has increased, that people have have bought packages of tickets and then said, oh, but I really want to see one or two more. Uh, there was a woman who came up to me after one of the shows, and because Chris and I introduce all the shows, people feel that they know us, and they come up and chat with us, which is wonderful. But um, I hear all sorts of personal stories, uh, and a woman told me that she had bought a pass of 10 tickets and ended up buying 16 tickets, and that it was keeping her going. She's been suffering from cancer for the past three years, and this is like the thing in her life right now that she lives for every year, which is flabber, you know, just sort of mind-blowing to me. It's just amazing, but incredibly inspiring to say that you're something that we're working so hard for all year round is, is having that sort of audience impact. We know that it's having impact on the artists involved, but to see that it's affecting audience members is wonderful. Well, speaking of the impact on the artists, what do you think is the biggest benefit of the festival for the, the writers and creators involved in the shows? It varies from project to project and from artist to artist because we really do reach artists in a, f a really wide range of places in their careers and, and projects in a, in a wide range of places in those projects' lives. For some shows, it will be that they get picked up by a commercial producer with a lot of money who transfers it right then and there. For other artists, it will be that they get noticed for the first time um, or seen by people who have the potential to offer them jobs in the future. And for everyone involved, I think it's an enormous networking experience. It's an opportunity to see and be seen and to meet other artists, to see what other people are doing. 
And I think that sense of community is something that is really uh, we have to constantly fight for. In a culture where there is so little opportunity, people are struggling on their own so often. And uh, one of the great things I think a festival offers is an opportunity to have a window into what everyone else is going through and to build off of each other's stories. You've had some production experience yourself. I'm just curious, this, maybe this will enlighten exactly how much of a great benefit providing these productions for the shows are. You, say a small show. Say mm-hmm. a show with just you know three or four people in the thing, relatively simple tech needs. What are the budgetary requirements to even get a small show up off-Broadway in New York, approximately? Off-Broadway? Yeah. If it's a musical, you're not going to be able to do it for less than, you know, a million and a half dollars. Even off-Broadway? Even off-Broadway. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's expensive to do a musical. Do you have a feeling that all of this is building, like, a new production network as well? Uh, new producers and... I think it's building a new network of theater artists on every front. I think... Obviously, writers and you know, and designers and all these people are getting opportunities that they they haven't otherwise had. But also producers, there are so many aspiring producers who are getting the chance to work with real professionals and to to try their hand at this for much less risk than they might otherwise have. And in many instances, we've reached out to those networks that already exist of aspiring producers, and, and they do exist, to when we've had shows that need producers, uh, and we've sort of partnered with them to make these shows happen. And, they, and, and I think what we've witnessed over the past three years now is that some of those people come back time and time again and want to do another show in the festival, or they bring their friends in. And so it's been fascinating to go out to like a restaurant out around the corner from the 45th Street Theater, say, after a show, and see all these young producers sitting around a table and chatting about what, what so-and-so did with their show. And, and, and it, it is this sort of can-do, do-it-yourself atmosphere that is what we all dream theater should be. <laughs> Let's let's go put it on a show in a barn. You never know until the paint dries, really, what you have. So uh, time will tell. We're still hearing stories from last year of things that are finally solidifying. There are shows from last year. Uh, Rooms, which was Paul Scott Goodman's piece that we had last year, is now just been announced for Off-Broadway for this coming season. If there's any aspiring writer, writers out there listening to this show, do you know the general timeline that's going to be submissions for them to think about getting ready? We start taking submissions, at, usually it's in the second week of January. We give ourselves a, a, a few days of rest after the new year. Um, and then we take them for two months until March, mid-March. And, uh, and then we announce our first set of shows in the first week of May. So do you have any closing thoughts of anything new anybody can expect to see next year? Well, we have a couple. We're trying to expand across, to do some events throughout the year, and uh, we've been in the process of commissioning some new projects as well. And uh, But I, I think in the spring we'll have some other announcements to make. All right. Well, thanks for coming down. Is Thank there? you. All right. We're going to be playing a few songs from shows that have succeeded from the festival. And first up is Alter Boys, which debuted in the first New York Musical Theater Festival and has been having a very successful run off Broadway and is, in fact, launching a national tour very shortly. Here's a song from the cast album. This is the Miracle Song from the Alter Boys. Yo, Abe, break me off a piece of that Miracle Funk. John, two, Mother Mary got invited to a wedding. Everybody's drinking, excited, when all of a sudden, the wine gave out. Mary- 
Hurry on the QT gave JC a shout. Hey. Jesus said, Woman, what do I have to do with you? He was only there to party with his 12 member crew, but Mary was his mama, so he said, And they did, thinking it was worth a shot. Jesus said, Take some out and give it to the waiter. He drank and said, Why'd you save the good stuff for later? The wedding was a hit and everything turned out fine. But how'd he make the water turn into wine? Christ, how'd you do that? How'd you make it happen? Christ, how'd you do that? How'd you make it go down? Mark, what? Galilee was what he was. Casting out demons and preaching like he does. When a leper showed up and begged the big man. Make it clean if you're willing to Cause he knew that leprosy is a back disease That makes a homie go to pieces Reached out his hand and touched him Ew. I am well and be cleansed He said, and it worked too The man was alright cause he came to my boy Not in second kings that anybody heard this noise And all he had to do was give that guy one little touch So amazing, I wanna know so much Christ, how'd you do that? To his father, they were hella far from shore And the sea was wicked rough When they saw ghosts just walking on the water They all cried out in fear Thinking things were pretty bleak Floating on the ocean, but up a creek Jesus said, don't be afraid But they had doubts So Jesus said to Peter Stand up and get out of the boat And come to me And Pete was walking like a pro But the wind kicked up But he was sinking like a stone So back into the boat Pete and Jesus hopped But when they sat down The wind just stopped Seeing is believing Stuff to this lonely rapper, but some dude said that was a long time ago. When's the last time he did a magic show? Well, if your eyes ain't shut and your heart ain't iced, you might find yourself saying, Jesus Christ, how'd you do that? Remember, you can find more information and links on all of the shows that we talk about in this program at broadwaybullet.com. Just click on the volume eight and it'll take you to our forums where we have all sorts of links. And hey, don't feel shy. Start contributing and you can talk and meet a lot of theater fans and the thing. We got a lot of listeners that just uh, imagine it just takes somebody being not too shy to be first to the party in the forums. And then we'll have a lively forum board as well. But let's jump into our first non-New York Musical Theater Festival related segment here. Are there any New Yorkers who haven't worked a temp job? I don't think anybody out there really loves the experience. And a new play called The Thugs addresses a lot of these issues in some very different and fresh ways. We have a couple people involved with the thugs with us. How are you guys doing? Good, Good thanks. <laughs> Want to introduce yourselves quickly? I'm Adam Bach. I'm the playwright. I'm Annie Kaufman. I'm the director. What is the thugs about? Well, I can read you a little thing that says it's mysterious things are happening on the ninth floor of a big law firm. What could a new temp have to fear? And uh, I worked as a receptionist at a temp agency, so we would send people out all the time to go get temp jobs. And one day I went and had a look at what we were sending them to do. And I got there, and they were all sitting around these tables looking at paper. 
and highlighting it and putting little tabs on it. And I'd send it, we were sending them to law firms to code. And what coding is, is basically you look through all these pieces of paper for someone's name, and then you put a tag or you highlight it. And then you go on to the next piece of paper, and you do that all day for like eight hours a day. And so I thought, oh my gosh, can't believe this is, people are sitting there eight hours a day. They weren't even allowed to have like earphones or, you know, music. They just had to sit there and do this. So I had moved to New York, and I was working at a uh, library, the workspace at a library in Midtown that was very dusty and very sort of alone. And I would sit there, and I'd sort of look around, and I'd be like, this building's a little scary. And I worked a couple of temp jobs where I was on like the ninth floor, the 10th floor of these big corporate buildings. And, and they put you in a little room all by yourself. And I was like, these buildings are really kind of frightening because you have no idea who's in the next room or on the elevator or anywhere. And so there are all these little cubbies that you could go into. And I started thinking of the corporate world as a little bit, um, could be frightening. And I started thinking about, oh, okay, I'm gonna write a play. What if you got, scared as a temp, who would you go to? Because no one talks to you. I thought, what if they start getting freaked out about who's in the building with them? And that's sort of where the play kind of came from. Now I understand, Anne, that you've been with the show for longer than just this production of it. Well, Adam and I started working on this, I guess, in 2000, maybe 2004 together. Four, something like that. Right. And we uh, did a reading of it, and then we decided we wanted to explore expanding the piece. And also we wanted to explore its physicality, because it's really easy to think about an office play as people sitting around and just and coding, as Adam talked about. But we also, I mean, Adam's writing, what he allows me to do as a director is he, he sort of takes off seemingly small chunks of things so that you can sort of go really, really, really deeply into a character and find the detail. I mean, really, really put a microscope on these characters. So we were interested in sort of exploring how these temps live in this space together and sort of what their physical lives were and what the, and how we could sort of explore their relationships through these physical lives, the stuff that's sort of not, you know, in the text necessarily. But right. The, and, and just explore, I mean, obviously there's subtext in the text, um, but beyond that there's sort of like a, a kind of dance that happens, uh, you know, physically that lives sometimes in conjunction with the text and sometimes um, as counterpoint to the text. So we were trying to find that rich layer. Um. Temps don't get to talk. So you're sitting here working and you've been sitting next to someone for a year and you have all these resentments. So how do they show up? So she had to find all this physical work that would explain like, oh, this, these two people hate each other. And yet they don't get to say anything because you're not allowed to talk. So what do you do? Do you, do you knock over their chair? Do you bump into them? Do you not take, get them water? Do you not let them use your pencil? He writes, I would say, short plays that are very, very packed. They're sort of microcosm. So this kind of detail that we're talking about, when you go deep, 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 it becomes an incredibly rich microcosm of the world. So in a way, this temp office, we're looking at this community of people from all different backgrounds, and we're watching them become hysterical over happenings in the building. And for me, it's incredibly political, because it's exactly what's happening in the United States now. I figure, actually, that it's so easy when we talk in a big picture not to be present myself when I'm looking at it. You know, if it's a thing about a big drama, it's really easy for me actually, really I think what happens is we distance rather than we identify because it's hard to recognize myself when a big drama is happening. Now, if someone's being petty, 
it's really easy for me to notice myself <laughs> because I've done it all the time, you know, or if it's a small problem. I've had a lot of small problems in my life. I've had my share of big ones, but, you know, those don't come often as we see in plays. You know, there's always in a play there's someone has cancer and their sister's this and there's this and there's this. And to me, that's just not the way my world works. What happens is usually I'm having a fight with one person and I'm disappointed about something and I'm sad about something and that actually ends up being a life. Anyway, it just shows who I am. And that person that he's mad at is usually me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about the Soho Rep, the company putting it on as well? They're good. Well, these guys are, yeah, they're, Soho Rep is amazing. You know, it's been around for 30 years, and a lot of people don't know that, but they've been doing adventurous work for, for 30 years, and they've built a reputation. I mean, I remember when I first moved to New York, which was about 15 years ago, you know, I went to go see the best of the best down there, Mac Wellman and Len Jenkins and these incredible actors. And so it's thrilling. And Daniel Auken, who is the artistic director who's leaving, has sort of upheld that that tradition. And I think that it's a thrilling place to be working. I mean, it's some place that I've admired for a very long time. It's totally great because you see who the people that we were able to get to come act in the show, even though it's, you know, it's a small theater, and who we've got doing our set and who we've got doing our sound and who we've got doing all the stuff, the lighting is amazing because of so rap. They and us. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. You know, it's true, though. But uh, yeah, but, but Soho Rep does, does attract the cream of the, the creme de la creme, I think, of artists. I mean, true artists. I think that Soho Rep sort of represents that adventurous, uh, you know, very cutting edge kind of um, theater that people who might not be willing to sort of take a chance on crazier plays will take a chance on Soho Rep because of the quality, I think. When is The Thugs running? Uh, it starts on Thursday the 5th. October 5th. October 5th, and it runs through the 28th of October. They can go to the SohoRep.org, and all the information is there. And It's, it's 46. 46 Walker Street, which is between Church and Broadway. Well, thanks for coming down to talk about your show as you head into the final stretches of pairing it. Thank you very Thank much you. for Come having us. Yeah. Right on. Marty Cooper's had 25 years' experience working at the Colony in the heart of Broadway, and he's met and seen just about everything. And every week he brings a segment he calls On the Positive Side, and this week he continues with his West End report. Hey, it's Marty Cooper back again with The Positive Side, continuing with my London trip. Hopefully you're interested. There are a few, a couple of things coming to London. One, the Trevor Nunn production of Porgy and Bess, uh, which is newly realized, which they say will be Broadway-bound. One other thing. Duck, Lord of the Rings is back. Uh, from what I hear about the Toronto production, uh, if I had seen it, it would be difficult for me to be positive about it, but I'd probably find something good. Uh, hopefully I'll be back in London next year. I'll be back to London next year and catch a glimpse of that. It sounds spectacular, but who knows? Now... I know what everybody wants to hear about. It's the London production of Wicked. And uh, I must say, they're treating it over there like a rock concert. We sat second row center, and in front of us there were girls with green hair. But it is great over there. People are saying it's a smaller production. It isn't. It's just that the proscenium, the proscenium at the Apollo Victoria is smaller. So it looks smaller, but Everything that happens on Broadway happens there. One great thing that they do when they go to the Emerald City, the whole theater turns green, which is exciting. Adina Menzel is great. 
as usual. For all your Adina freaks, you can get your fix by taking a plane over the pond. The girl they have playing Glinda, Helen Dallimore, is great. She's a little more proper uh, than Kristen Chenoweth. She has a bit of a British accent, but it still comes off well. She is beautiful to look at. And Adam Garcia as Fierro is great. Uh, you might have seen him in a few movies here. Uh, he also did Saturday Night Fever in London. I absolutely loved it over there, as I love it here. Uh, I think it gets a bad rap. There's somewhat of a wicked backlash because people are so nuts about it. But I think it's a wonderful show. Uh, I think the music by Mr. Schwartz is great. And he finally has a super hit after all these years. He's had a lot of hits, but not one with the uh, magnitude of this one. You should all try to make it over and see it over there, especially if you want to catch Adina. Uh, you'll have a good time. I didn't mention it last week. Uh, I spoke about Mary Poppins. And the young lady, I was trying to think of her first name, is Scarlett Stralin. And she was a wonderful Mary Poppins. She was a real Technicolor princess, if you know what I'm talking about, reminding us of the old MGM musicals and the original Mary Poppins movie. And the fellow playing Shay in Evita, Matt Rawl, who's done a few other things over there. He's, I think he's been Marius and Les Mis. He was Chris and Miss Saigon. He is absolutely dynamic. I felt I had to mention these people because I missed up on them last week and uh, I felt they were a notable thing to do. Tuesday night, we're going to a theater party of Chorus Line and I can't wait. I, I think Chorus Line and Les Mis are two of the most exciting things to happen to Broadway in a long time. I think next week I'll talk about some more revivals that are coming in, which are interesting. A couple of things that Roundabout is doing. So I'll see you on the positive side next week. Remember, you can visit colonymusic.com or just go to the Colony at 49th and Broadway for all of your cast albums, sheet music, and karaoke needs. Marty and his friendly staff are always there to help. And you can say, I found it at the Colony. The Great American Trailer Park musical had a very successful off-Broadway run after it premiered in the first season of the New York Musical Theater Festival. And we've got a sample song from their soundtrack cast album. This is called The Buck Stops Here from the Great American Trailer Park Musical. Don't you be shy with me Down to the nitty and gritty.
Theater didn't always used to be performed exclusively in theater spaces, and one company is bringing back the idea of some alternative spaces. The Phoenix Theater Company is presenting a couple new plays this month, and we've got two of the directors involved here with us. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. All right. Do you want to take a moment quick and introduce yourself in the show you're directing? Sure. Uh, my name is Mike Sarabian, and I am directing the complete works of William Shakespeare, Abridged. I'm John Jampetro, and I'm directing The Sneeze, Plays and Stories by Anton Chekhov. Hey, some of our listeners may be familiar with these titles, but if they aren't, <laughs> do you guys each want to give your quick 30-second uh, elevator pitch of what the story is? Sure. Well, mine's easy. It's uh, three guys doing all of Shakespeare's plays and sonnets in 90 minutes, and that includes the intermission. So that's that, uh, you can make up what the rest of it is like. Yeah, and then the sneeze uh, is an evening of uh, seven short works uh, by Chekhov, uh, four short plays that he wrote, and then three adaptations of short stories uh, adapted by Michael Frayn. These are both being presented in bars, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I guess kind of a just interesting as a discussion from a director's point of view. Mm -hmm. Why put it on in the bar? What are some of the challenges of putting it on the bar? What have you guys run into with getting your shows ready? Well, I can start by saying, uh, you know, as one of the founders of Phoenix Theater Ensemble, we decided to do these plays in a pub for a number of reasons. One of them was uh, there's obviously a space challenge here in New York City, and we were looking for places that weren't exorbitantly high rent and uh, a place where we could have a lot of fun as well. And so, obviously, bars came to mind immediately, and then it just sort of took off from there. And uh, this is the uh, second and third productions that we've been doing in bars. We did complete works of William Shakespeare last year at the Mint Theater in our uh, spring rep, and we're now extending it uh, at the New York Improv, which is uh, the famous New York Improv Comedy Club. I don't know. The challenges of, of that are, you know, the size of the space, particularly. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a room the size of the studio that I'm in right now uh, <laughs> talking to you. You know, it's small, and that's a big show. Uh, well, I should say it's a lot of big movement and a lot of props and costumes, and so to have all of that going on in a space, you know, that's about the size of a, you know, an average Manhattan studio uh, is really a challenge. But at the same time, I think that it actually is better than when it was in a theater. It's right in front of people. It literally, people are almost on the stage and feel like they're part of the show. And as people who know the show can tell you, the audience is a part of that show. So it really works well for that one. As for the sneeze... Yeah, um, no, I agree. Uh, but I, I actually, I love the challenges of it because it demands that you use the space in a different way than you would, you know, a regular built for theater space. Uh, it means that you have to use and take advantage of the things that live there, uh, like a bar and like, you know, things that are not movable uh, in there. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to really incorporate the entire environment of the bar environment. We're not trying to make it look like a theater space. We're using the bar as is and incorporating the bar into the, into the piece, into the environment and the 
uh, of the plays themselves. And that's what's different yeah. between Complete Works and The Sneeze. The uh, Co- Complete Works actually has a stage. I mean, there's a stage yeah. that they actually perform on. It's just that the audience is a lot closer yeah. than they normally would be in a theater. We're, we have a stage, too, but we're not using it. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's actually there's a stage behind the playing space in the audience. Right. right. There's the bar on one end and then the stage on the other, and we're just flipping it around and actually using the bar area as our stage area. Yeah. Uh, and when we did the first play in a pub, we did a couple of uh, plays. We did a uh, one act by Tennessee Williams and a one act by Romulus Linney. And uh, it was done the same way. The bar area was the stage and the seating was in and among the the people and the actors. And it's just, I, it's very exciting. It's taking the black box to a new level. It's literally in and among the audience. And it's just, uh, there's nothing quite like it. Well, I'd imagine there's no better way to demystify Chekhov than to put it in a bar. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what, one of the things that always sort of irritates me about uh, Chekhov, or at least how he's presented uh, in American theater, there's this reverential approach to him. What happens a lot is that sort of removes the comedy from it. And Chekhov called most of his plays comedies. Yeah. I think it was the Three Sisters that he only called a drama. Um, That's funny, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't help himself. So, you know, by putting it in a bar, it, 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 it sort of highlights this idea. And these shows, some of them are very bawdy. Uh, some are raunchy. They were all, all of the short plays were heavily subjected to the censors in Russia when they were uh, first performed. Uh, so this is an opportunity for Chekhov to sort of uh, loosen his tie and for us to, yeah, like you said, de- demystify the whole Chekhov experience that you're, you, oh, you're allowed to laugh and laugh hard and loud. And, it's, and drink. Yeah, and drink. And <laughs> which, Chekhov which is always a to bonus. Be, yeah, <laughs> sexy. And, uh, yeah. The drinks are going to be served during the shows as well? Probably not during the shows, but <laughs> not during before August, but and at uh, intermission. Yeah. And if people are, you know, hanging around after, then after. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. That is a part of the evening, for sure. Now, in that kind of atmosphere, do you run the thing where you have to maybe prepare the actors for dealing with and anything goes <laughs> from the audience? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, luckily we've we've got a, um, uh, you know, two stellar casts mm. that are just they're just great and are ready for anything. These the three guys that I have in Complete Works and the two guys and the uh, lady that are in uh, mm-hmm. The Sneeze are just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And our show is somewhat can... manic, so it's the audience is really going to have to, you know, be right. alert <laughs> and keep up with them. So Good. there's no dull moments in it to throw your shot glass at actors. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not that you've we planned. Not, not yes. that you've planned. But they're, you know, with Complete Works, as you know, there's a lot of audience inter- interaction, and they're the variable in that. And so if something isn't going exactly right, if the show isn't moving, or they'll, they'll let you know. And uh, especially when you ask them to volunteer for stuff and no one does. It can be a dicey moment, but we've got some pro- real pros, so we're in good shape. Now, how long has the Phoenix Theater Ensemble been... We actually just celebrated our second birthday, our second anniversary, perhaps, and we're in our third season. And uh, the five of us who founded the theater came from the uh, the old Jean Cocteau rep, uh, and we were there for a number of years. Some of us for, well, I will say as few as five, six, or seven years, and some of us as long as 25 or 30 years. Uh, we were a part of the acting company. And so we've been producing in New York for a long, long time, but as Phoenix Theater Ensemble, just a couple of years. 
I mean, we're in our third season now. So what would you say is the mission statement for Phoenix Ensemble? Well, it's an artist-directed theater. The five of us are uh, actors, stage managers, directors, all of that. And so it's a, it's a company that's committed to artists as an ensemble and doing plays that are perhaps classical in vision and in scope but aren't limited to classical plays as, you know, your listeners might think of them. You know, we do plays that are contemporary, brand new, that have great language and great everything about them. And they might have some little classical uh, bit to them, but uh, but yeah, that's sort of where we are. Now, you said you, you did this bar presentation before. Did, were there any anecdotes, anything that went crazy or... Weird in well, the production? Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's always uh, dropped glasses and people asking for drinks from the cast members. And as soon as you break that fourth wall, we're asking the audience to come along for a ride with us. And we have to be aware that there are a lot of things that can happen in that instance. And so, you know, as soon as we start talking to the audience and we're right next to them at their table, they may say, oh, and honey, can you get me a seven up? <laughs> I mean, those kinds of things are not uncommon and weren't uncommon when we did them the first time. I was drunk when I saw them. You were? Time. Fantastic. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> I was. Um, well, that's, a, you know, that's another reason why we do these plays. You, you know, we can have a drink or two while we're in tech, which is, that's not a bad plus. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's always that kind of separation between audience and artist that we're breaking down and therefore the audience feels you know comfortable asking us for stuff and letting us know exactly what's going on it's hot in here can you turn the air conditioner on Okay, I'll get right on that as soon as I'm done with this speech. <laughs> <laughs> Complete Works of William Shakespeare Bridged opens first. Yeah, actually, we opened yesterday. We had a great house over at the Improv, and we're running. Uh, it's uh, it's odd times. It's uh, weekend matinees, and then Mondays, some Mondays, and some Tuesdays throughout October. We're doing about 14 shows. So, but all the dates and everything are on the website. And that's uh, phoenixtheaterensemble.org? That is correct. We yes. also have a link on our website for that. Oh, fantastic. And what dates approximately can they catch the Sneeze? Uh, sneeze opens October 14th and runs through November 14th. And that performs on Saturdays and Sundays at 3 p.m. and then Tuesday, uh, Sundays and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Uh, and that's at Ace of Clubs, which is the downstairs bar at Acme Bar and Grill, which is in the NoHo area, which is fantastic, it's too. It's a great space. Yeah, you would right. imagine Chekhov being there. Only Chekhov. Yeah. Yeah, I think Chekhov would. Maybe. And, and us. Sure. All right. Well, good luck with your shows, and thanks for coming down and speaking with Broadway Bullet. Michael, thanks, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Title of show debuted last year at the second New York Musical Theater Festival and just recently concluded a very successful off-Broadway run. We hear rumors that it may be coming back shortly, and I certainly hope so because I just had a great time watching it. It's just a fun, fun show. Here's another one of my favorite songs from that soundtrack album. This is Way Back to Then from Title of Show. Dancing in the backyard, Kool-Aid mustache and butterfly wings, hearing Andrea McArdle sing from the hi-fi in the den. I've been waiting my whole life to find a way back to then. I aimed for the sky A nine-year-old can see so far I'll conquer the world and be a star I'll do it all by the time I'm ten I would know that confidence If I knew a way back to then So I bailed on my hometown 
and became a college theater dork. I was eastbound and down, moving to New York. So I crammed my life in a U-Haul to find my part of it all. But the mundane sets in. We play by the rules and plow through the days. The years take us miles away from the time we wondered find a way back to then and when you least expect opportunity walks through the door you suddenly connect with the thing that you forgot that you've been looking for and there you are right in the middle of what you love with the craziest of company you're having a kick-ass time and being who you wanted to be We're having a contest every week called Stump the Staff, but we need your participation. We only had one question submitted last week, so we're rolling it over another week. So we have at least, you know, two or three. But it's real easy. All you have to do is submit a theater trivia question. You can go to BroadwayBullet.com to find the links of how to do it. The first ten questions each week that are submitted get entered into the contest. The Drama Bookshop staff gets a few days to answer the questions, and if any one of the questions stumps the staff, you win a $20 gift certificate to the Drama Bookshop, and they do ship anywhere internationally, so wherever you are, you can submit your question. And if nobody stumps the staff, the last question answered, or the mutually agreed-upon toughest question will win a $20 gift certificate to the Drama Bookshop. So get participating, submit a question. There's not a lot being submitted right now, so the odds are pretty good of winning that gift certificate. The Drama Bookshop is conveniently located on 40th Street between 7th and 8th Avenues in New York City or online at dramabookshop.com. We've been whittling down the Broadway Idol contestants every week with interviews with all three of the finalists last week, and we are pleased to announce the winner is Jacqueline Huberman. Jack is the inaugural Broadway Idol winner for the New York Musical Theater Festival, and she will be having a to-be-announced showcase date at Ars Nova to be promoted by Nymph and Ars Nova, and she will also come on the show and sing a couple songs for us and get a little bit more in-depth of an interview with her at a later date. So congratulations, Jack. And we're going to get back to our interviews with Sharon Fallon. Well, Sharon Fallon has been a producer around New York for a while, and she's been involved producing shows for all three of the New York Musical Theater Festivals so far. So I thought it appropriate to bring her in in this wrap-up episode to talk about how she feels Nymph fits in to the musical theater world from a producer's perspective. How are you doing today, Sharon? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'll tell you, it's Nymph is such a fascinating experience as a producer. 
the first year, I mean, I couldn't believe these guys were even doing all these musicals and that they had found so many great musicals. But what happened after year one was I realized as a producer that this was a great opportunity to get to see your show up on its feet at a very low cost and you got to see what it looked like because they wanted fully produced shows. And because by year two, the festival had gained so much notoriety, there were no problems getting people to do your show. You could get Broadway talent, you could get Broadway directors, you could get musicians who understood what was going on here. And it was just the perfect place. And I had a show that I wanted to see up on its feet, which was Nerds, a musical software satire, which was a huge success last year in the festival. It's my favorite show that I got to see last year. Well, so. thank you so much. <laughs> How has the festival worked in terms of attracting you know, people to help get the shows going forward? You know, from your perspective, in terms of producers, or I mean, well, you're a producer yourself, so mm -hmm. do you bring in other producers, or does do. it help with fundraising? To it get helps the... with both. It helps with fundraising. It helps in a lot of areas. In my situation, all, including this year, I'm the producer of the show, and I have the rights to produce it, and you know, I have the options and whatnot. For nerds, because we thought nerds had a life after the festival, very specifically, it helped us bring in people that we thought might want to present it at their theater. We brought in a lot of out-of-town commercial presenters. We brought in a lot of additional producers because it takes more than two people to put up a big, huge musical. And it was very helpful to us to get feedback from various places, why the show would work for them, why the show wouldn't work for them. It also gave us an opportunity to see what we needed to do with the show in order to go to the next place. So while all that was happening, and after the festival, and we had our nice little demo after the festival, we started sending it out to various and sundry places that we thought their mission fit with our show. And we were very lucky because the Philadelphia Theatre Company called us and said, we want to do your show. So after I did my little victory dance, we started working with them. And their mission is to produce new American works. And of course, this is Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. How much more American can you get than that? So now we go to Philadelphia, and this is a regional theater, for a four-week run in January, February of this year. And right now we're in the process of casting and putting our creative team together to go down there to do this. You were mentioning to me before we you know, interviewed that you were crunching the numbers with nerds and felt that it was going to be hard economically off-Broadway well, versus, you know, Broadway. And now you're working with a small show, you know, three sides, a three-person show. What's the economic difference in those besides just the cast? When I pick shows, I don't care how many people are in them. Yeah. If I love it, I'm going to figure out a way to do it. So for me, the size of the cast and the band and, and all of that doesn't play a part when I'm looking at something to develop. With Nerds, when we did it at Nymph last year, we were really thinking that this was a show that could have a long life off Broadway. Unfortunately, what's happened with the off-Broadway world is it doesn't attract the audiences the way it used to. And because the cost of producing in general is so high that it's difficult to make your numbers work when the top ticket price for a musical off-Broadway is like $65 to $75. And for $25 more, they could go down the street and see Spelling Bee. 
So we really had to rethink the vision for the show and what we wanted to do with the show without losing all of the wonderful charm of the show. I think shows like Avenue Q and Spelling Bee and You're in Town have opened up for a show like Nerds the possibility and the potential for it to be on Broadway. Because people obviously loved these shows. I mean, Avenue Q and, and Spelling Bee are having very long, successful runs. And I think You're in Town probably would have too if they hadn't torn down that theater. <laughs> so those have opened up the door for a smaller, not big flashy musical, if you will. Even so, I understand that <laughs> that doesn't make an influence in you picking your choice, but what is the financial difference between putting on a, a small intimate show like Three Sides and a, a show like Nerds? Um, huge. I think the budget for Three Sides for Nymph in, specifically is about one third of what it was for Nerds. And when you're doing a show at the festival, you're held within some financial constraints with equity. And my co-producers, Dan Wallace and Trish Whitehurst, and I sat down one day with a piece of paper and pencil, and I went, wow, this is going to be, like, really cheap. <laughs> I mean, that didn't make us want to do it more or less, but it, because we only have three actors and we only have three musicians, salaries become, you know, not as great. And, you know, with Nerds, we had eight actors, and I had a full band of four uh, music director conducting and on keyboards and a bass player and a drum. You know, we had four plus all of the people I needed backstage to make the show happen. But it's sort of like comparing apples and oranges because of the nature of the show. Three Sides is a lot more technically complicated. It doesn't look it, but it is because of the orchestrations and because it's so many tiny scenes and, and the lighting and the sound, the nerds. So, I mean, in terms of producing both of them, it's still the same amount of time, effort, and even though it doesn't cost as much, mm -hmm. it's still, if my time is money, <laughs> it still costs the same. <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck with all your endeavors as you're, as you're working with them going forward. Now I think we're going to be able to play a song from Nerds. What song would uh, you like you us to play? You are going to hear the closing song of Act One, which is called Windows, and it is performed by Bill Gates, and it is when Microsoft becomes the thing. He is on the top of the world, and if you don't have Microsoft on your computer, your computer doesn't work. So that's the song you're going to hear. All right. Look forward to seeing nerds in uh, Philadelphia in January. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, yo, 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 all you suckers. You up at FC Gates house now. We about to break off the wall. Uh. I come from Harvard. There's no testing me. One six double donut on the SAT. Paul Allen, Yo. he's my right hand guy. My cruise IQ never ends like pie. I'm a gangster crook. Apple tree got shook. Enter the gates, broke a window, and I stole their look. On the way out the door, I said, Remember my name, Bill Gates, bitch. Champ of the software gang. Windows, it's fresh and hot. Oh, yes, the new OS for your desktop. Windows, now you heard about it. Gonna run your computer without it. Doubt it, this Microsoft office is no longer. For a nerd, my outlook excels me to my PowerPoint word. I will not be pants. 
chapter two, full throttle on the industry attack. Steve Jobs left Apple, so now I'm the mag. That's another difference between him and me. He's trying to make them ones, I'm trying to make them bees. One billion, two billion, three billion, four. In two more years, 80 billion more. I'm recognized all over because of my fame. Bill Gates, bitch, pimp of the software game. Windows and take a peek. I got it locked from Seattle to Mozambique. Windows, better call your suppliers, cause without it, your computer is a box full of wires. This Microsoft office is no longer for a nerd. My Outlook excels me to my PowerPoint word. I will not be pantsed. When you see me, you don't see a nerd at all. I've made a transformation. How about you, Paul? I'm not sure how I feel. It's kind of like a dream. I bought myself a basketball team. I could buy the whole world with only just a third of my fortune. I'm cool now, haven't you heard? This Microsoft office is no longer for a nerd. My outlook excels me to my PowerPoint word. Ars Nova is one of the organizations helping spread the word about Broadway Bullet, and they've got a couple great events coming up. Tom Shalou, it's all about the story. Downtown comedian Tom Shalou holds court on how to harness the powers of your inner or outer dork to achieve true coolness. With his hilarious tales of exploding Ford Mavericks, inventing dance crazes, Madonna only wishes she thought of, and going to more proms than seems humanly possible. You can catch him at 8 p.m. on October 11th and the 18th. Also, Uncharted with Alan Zachary and Michael Weiner. Their songs have been performed all over the world on stage and screen, and now the Broadway-bound songwriting team of Alan Zachary and Michael Weiner bring you an evening of their original music featuring some of the top names in modern musical theater. Catch them at this intimate concert before they explode onto the Great White Way with their new musical, Secondhand Lines, with a book by Rupert Holmes and based on the New Line Cinema film. This features performances by Mark Kudish, Carrie Butler, Leslie Kritzer, Jenna Lee Green, and Rupert Holmes, and that will be October 15th at 7 p.m. For more information on Ars Nova events, you can go to arsnovanyc.com. There was only one show from the New York Musical Theater Festival that we interviewed that, due to the timing of when he came into the interview, we were unable to run while the show was still performing. So we held off on that till this last wrap-up episode, but it doesn't mean it's not a great show. It did extremely well, got a lot of buzz, and we're going to talk with the authors of Drift right now. A singer-songwriter's song cycle and his adaptation and turning that into a full-length musical has been an interesting road for the musical Drift. We have the writers of Drift here in the studio. How you doing? Hey, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, would you like to introduce yourselves very quickly? Uh, I am Jeremy Schoenfeld, composer-lyricist. And I am Craig Pospisil, book writer. Tell us about Drift. Drift began as a, uh, as a concept album I created in 2001, based around my own experience in divorce and child custody. And um, I put that out as an album with Shikaboom Records soon after. Craig and I had met working on the A-Train musicals, plays and musicals at the Neighborhood Playhouse. We were already considering working on another project when um, I had to uh, then very quickly approach Craig and say, uh, Shikaboom would like to turn this into a uh, multimedia extravaganza musical with me in the center and will you write this with me? And the process began that took us to where we are now. 
<laughs> you want to take from there? <laughs> well, yeah, that, that original that original script was, uh, as he said, a multimedia thing. So I was kind of felt like I was writing a, a, a silent movie to go along with the soundtrack that was already yeah. already recorded, and that was that was kind of difficult. Was and trying to write basically in my head, exactly, was basically my <laughs> which story. was really crowded. <laughs> it's always really um, my so kind of uh, so did a couple of drafts of that before Jeremy got the rights to the show back, and we decided to strip it way down and throw all the multimedia stuff out and turn it into a more traditional uh, musical. Really, almost reconceiving it from basically take you know the process of taking it away from me and turning it into a show that involved other actors, other characters, and, you know, just broaden the appeal of the show, I think was really a very strong, important process, so. Yeah, we, that was a kind of a big reconceiving of it, yeah. to, to expand it into other people's stories, as well as the main character of David Harris, the singer-songwriter, who's the, the lead. So what was the challenge as a, as a book writer, taking this existing work and then turning it into a a stage play. Well, yeah, musical. I mean, the, ch the challenge at first, uh, in that first draft, was kind of feeling sometimes like I was ghostwriting Jeremy's story. And that was kind of tough to just be doing that and not being able to bring as much of myself into it because I've also been through a divorce. And so when we kind of stepped back from that and, and turned it into the story of mainly David going through this divorce and child custody, and during that process he joins a men's therapy group. And so suddenly we had all these other characters, these other men who were also going through relationship problems. And so suddenly I was able to bring a lot of my own experience and those people I knew kind of into to bear on this show yeah. and really was able to, to flesh that out a lot. Even the playing um, field in a way too. Yeah. You know, being able to put it more personal thing. And it's not, it was also good at the same time for me to be able to step away from it personally <clears throat> and look at this as a project. Look, this is a show, not my baby, so to speak, because, you know, you really, you know, in, in this process, on all ends, you have to be willing to, um, to murder your darlings at any time. And I think that that was a very key thing for me at a certain point. I think when we were reconceiving this, and when we did it last year in the festivals as our the first time, we'd been working on it for only a few months, the, the, the current version. We'd, um, that we that version was like, Five months old. Yeah. <laughs> was, that I mean, was if a that, fast, we were just, we just, fast, right. you know, we worked very quickly and we were able to, you know, put up something that was wildly successful last year. We were very excited about what, you know, we knew that we were in the right place when we did the concert readings at the festival. We just kind of continued on that path and the more we went that way, the more I rewrote or wrote new works because I have new music that, uh, you know, that is important into the show. And, and so I, you know, felt like a, it felt like the right way to go with this piece. We weren't gonna, we were gonna do something at the end of October, just try to put it up ourselves, and then all of a sudden, Matt Wolf, my dear friend, who is actually sort of portrayed in a role in the show, <laughs> he came up forward and said, you know what, why don't we just throw this back in the festival? I think they need another show, and they love you uh, from last year. Why don't you guys, you yep. know, put a full run together? And we said, well, when is that? And they said, oh, how about, you know, can you six do this weeks in six now? weeks? <laughs> so so we the, had to cast it, uh, rehearse it, raise the money, etc. in about yeah. six weeks. So it's when we go up tomorrow, it'll be exactly, probably, I mean, almost exactly six weeks since we started this process <laughs> yeah. of getting the show together. So before we talk further, uh, do you want to take a moment to introduce the first song we're going to play? Sure. Um, we're going to play the opening <coughs> song uh, and the opening song on the concept album, Gone. Basically, it's a song that starts from the moment of departure. It's the, the moment that the decision is made to go uh, and leave the marriage, you think it over, then you stop, and then you're gone. And um, it kind of takes you through a bit of that journey of the initial exit from 
uh, from the marriage into that kind of no man's land of not having a place to live and, uh, and exist.
Jeremy, how has it been balancing your career as both a you know contemporary songwriter and a musical theater writer? Uh, interesting. <laughs> For me, writing music and um, performing, all of those things are um, are intertwined, and I, I I I like to believe that what I do, one of the things I do best I, um, is storytelling. For me, that can work in, in many different areas of music and I, I like to think that the challenge of writing musical theater is really telling a, a story and telling it well telling it effectively and it's it's a different structure than writing a, just an individual song so I really I really enjoy the challenge I just enjoy the challenge of being able to do things that are interesting and working interesting areas I don't think that I would ever be comfortable just you know doing one thing I have to perform I have to sing I ha I love being in the studio and and I love doing whatever jingle work that I get and at the same time musical theater just the not only right sitting there in the creative process with Craig and working through all this stuff and you know grinding out uh, a story but at the same time working with the you know the multitude of talented people that are involved in the process of putting a show up I think is just an exciting and interesting process and if we can put something up there that affects people uh, and people come up, you know, afterward and say, you know what, I can relate to that. In general, in songwriting, in general, in music, that's a really big thing. And it means that that not only have they related to my story, our story, the show that we've put up, but they've related to it for their own specific reasons. So we've done our job. And I think that one of the things that we've really tried to do in this show is to make sure that people will feel like, you know, hey, you know what, I, I, I can relate to that. I, I think everybody's... You know, 50 some odd percent of people have been through divorce. Um, you know, marriages end in divorce. Yeah. So that means that not only in your family, or you maybe individually might be going through divorce, but that means your brother, your uncle, your grandma, your grandpa, whatever, they went through it. So they're going to be touched by it somehow. So, so we figure we have a huge fan base. Yeah, built in. Really <laughs> depressed fan base who are ready to, <laughs> ready to relive that really, depression. Yeah, cry for us. You had six weeks to put together this project, but. From what I understand, with a lot of your past work, that should feel like ages. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jeremy yeah. and I met working on this 24-hour theater project called the A-Train Plays, which um, is from start writing to finish performance uh, about a day's time. We get on the, on the train at one end of the A-Train line at 207th Street, and you pull a number from the hat, and that's how many people you have to write for, and you pull the headshots of the actors at random, and by the time you get to the other end of the line, which is a little less than two hours, you have to write a short play or book to a musical. On the reverse side, coming back from Far Rockaway to 207th, the composers, like Jeremy, have that time to write two songs for the show. On my little Casio in the corner. <laughs> Casio. With, with crowded people coming on and sometimes wanting to know, what are you doing? And can I be in the show? And God. It gets, it gets funny. And you always worry about that one person who's going to sit there and say, hey, dude, you know what? You're taking up two seats. Move. <laughs> I had I had a woman. Never happens. That's the I had a about woman a big bald, pass out on me on the train once as I was really coming back. I was going uptown and this woman was like passed out, kind of on my shoulder, and I kept trying. Luckily, doing not this, my, but you kept writing. My writing hand. I'm not so sure I she's dead trying, or not, but you know what? That's okay. I got a show to write. Push her off, and she would be. I'm sorry. And then she kind of looked up at one point. She said, "Is this the A train?" And I said, yeah. <laughs> she said, damn, I wanted the B. You know, we're used to working under the gun, that is for sure. So <laughs> I, I, I kind of pride, you know, I like to pride myself and my abilities to be able to, you know, think quickly and write things quickly and make cuts and things. And So the show definitely has this, uh, I'm coming from your angle, and it's about divorce. You know, yeah. 
I would think it'd be easy for a lot of women to be turned off by the concept. Is that is the case? Should they be? No, I I don't <laughs> think so. Um, because we you know we tried to be very even-handed and balanced in it. It's not a show about. David or anybody in the, the therapy group bashing the women that they're breaking up with. In fact, I almost, I think kind of a lot of women would find the show appealing because in this setting we have these men talking about their feelings and being open and expressing themselves. That mythical beast. Oh my god, oh, wow. it, it couldn't yeah. happen. It's but a it, unicorn. It's, it's exactly. <laughs> you have the Pandora's it's box. Open it, open it. <laughs> inside, inside look at, at things. We certainly took pains to really try to make this show not and even you know even the original album wasn't that way and that you know that was done it could easily have been that kind of a thing you know it's more of a, an emotional journey uh, than anything else and that that journey includes it goes everywhere um, as far as all the different you know there are the angry moments there are the moments of clarity there are the moments of sadness and depression the addition of other elements other different types of people in the show including the future ex-wife means that you know you're get, you're getting a, a really broad range of uh, of emotional angles and insight into the whole process of kind of the divorce and how it affects a child how it affects the the you know men women i i think that it should uh, have no problem appealing to everyone i think you know uh, hopefully we've touched on enough kind of universal chords uh, Without being to be generic, musical. yeah. Bum, bum. yeah uh, no. Well, I understand your uh, first few shows are already have sold out, yeah, and yes. by the time we air this, you will have completed your run. So <laughs> people will have to like hope that Wish a producer comes up to the, the step up and take this up a little bit further. We Sarah, hope right? so too. All right. Well, thanks for coming down. Thank you. Thank you very much. And would you like to take a second to introduce the next song we'll play from Drift? Yeah, the uh, title track um, from the album. Which in the uh, in the show is actually being sung by three characters with a nice three-part harmony thing happening. Uh, song drift. It is basically just sort of the statement of the show. Yeah, when love has drifted on, what do you rely upon? And um, now you've given it all away. I know. Now you have no no means to think that period of time when you've drifted away and the marriage is ending. Almost that intermediate limbo between leaving and officially sort of settling into a new life. It's that year, year and a half, whatever it is, where life is just sort of kind of all over the place while you're trying to find out where your next, the way the next stage begins. It takes more than a miracle To weather every storm The song always sounds more when the writer uses proper craft and form But when love has drifted on What do you rely upon when love has drifted Sensible, and 
Unless you're willing to stand tall No action reprehensible If you never act at all And when love has drifted What do you rely upon When love has drifted on What do you up volume eight of broadway bullet remember you can find out more about all the shows at broadwaybullet.com you can also listen to the program on broadway world radio just go to broadwayworld.com they also play show tunes constantly and have a top six request at six every night we've got a great in-depth interview with hunter foster for you next week and a lot of other great stuff so keep spreading the words and tell everybody about broadway bullet Until then, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. 
theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere. But most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.